Okay, we're going to get started this evening. It's uh, Boy, it's really good to see you all here tonight, uh, ready to worship the Lord through prayer. Uh, it's been a good, good evening. Um, sorry I'm late. We were doing interviews for baptism and membership, and uh, it's just a joy to hear everyone's testimony of how God's grace has been at work in their life. And um, So, uh, tonight, if you would please turn in your Bible to Luke 22. Luke 22, it has been a joy to meditate on the glory of Jesus from the book of Hebrews of the last three weeks, uh, being reminded of how, though He was God the Son, though He is God the Son, the Creator and Heir of all things, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, uh, though Jesus is all of those things, He nevertheless took on flesh and blood as our High Priest suffered when tempted yet without sin and then tasted death for every one of his children so that through his suffering you and I uh, could be redeemed and delivered from lifelong slavery and given everlasting forgiveness and rest. Those are just wonderful truths. I mean, I loved them to death. Hebrews uh, is just a perfect companion book to Colossians or vice versa, whichever one you want to think. Um, And uh, it was very good that we covered those truths because those truths are exactly what we're about to see over the next few weeks here in the Gospel of Luke. As you recall, we are traveling through our six-part study of principles on prayer from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We're in section 5, which covers principles on prayer from the Passion Week of Jesus. In this section, we're looking at several scenes Uh, from Jesus' final week before his death and discovering how central prayer was to Jesus' final activities and teachings just before his death and resurrection. We saw at the temple cleansing how we are to keep prayer's purity. True worship of God is marked by prayer. Therefore, our church family should be a house of prayer for all people. So we ought to keep prayer's purity. On the Mount of Olives, we learn that we are to keep prayers preparedness. In light of Christ's imminent arrival, we are to stay spiritually awake at all times by praying. So keep prayers preparedness. In the upper room, we were taught to keep prayers protection. You know, often we, just like Peter, uh, pridefully think ourselves ready for whatever life might have in store. Uh, God knows differently, and He reminds us, To rely on prayer is the primary means for our provision and protection in this world, so keep prayer's protection. This evening, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to be instructed through Jesus' example to keep prayer's passions. We're not to pray dispassionately as followers of Jesus Christ and as imitators of Him. We are, our hearts are to beat with the rhythm of Christ's own who showed us that when we pray for provision and protection, our prayers are to be guided and driven by four important heart attitudes that we're going to look at tonight. We'll look at them soon in verses 41 through 44 of how we must keep prayers passion. But before we dive in, let's just ask the Lord to richly bless the reading and the teaching of His Word tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for how it reveals to us the glory of Christ. We thank you for how it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for how it is a rich food for our souls. Father, we pray that you would feed us tonight, for we are weak. We pray that you would open our eyes to understand your truth. We pray that we would be strengthened by your grace 
to walk according to it for your honor and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have to start for context in verse 39 of Luke 22. It says, And he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So here Jesus calls everyone in that garden there that evening to pray. To pray even as he taught them earlier in Matthew 6.13 to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. It was time for Jesus and his disciples to pray. Why? Because they were in danger and in need of spiritual provision and protection. If you remember, the preceding passage that we looked at just before this in Luke 22 was a reminder that we live in a hostile world. And living in this hostile world, our provision and protection ultimately is dependent not upon ourselves, but upon God who richly provides and protects us. So it doesn't matter whether you have one sword, two swords, three swords, or no swords. If you have prayer and you have God, you have enough. You have enough. Enough for daily provision and for daily protection. And so, when Jesus calls everyone in that garden to pray, in light of the context immediately before that, he is telling the disciples, we are in danger. Spiritual danger. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in prayer. By the way, these 11 apostles aren't the only ones made aware of coming trials and hardships, we have been warned also in God's Word. Jesus says in John 16.33, In this world you will have trouble. All of us will face trials of various kinds, James 1.3 says. And it's part of this fallen world. As Job 5.7 says, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And so that is the reality that we are living in tonight. Everybody here, tonight, is either in trouble or about to be in trouble, is, about, is either going through a hardship or is about to go through a hardship. And Jesus' message to all of us, it is, it is time to pray. Pray for protection. Pray for provision. If you don't, if you don't pray now, then you'll be like Peter, as we'll see soon, who was crushed, blown away, and nearly destroyed in the day of trouble. Your prayer must begin now. Strengthen yourself in the Lord now. Why? So that when trouble comes, so that when trouble comes, Jesus says you may not enter into temptation. We live in a fallen world. To be confronted with temptation is a everyday experience. But to enter into temptation is when we sin. And so Jesus is warning us temptations are coming, trials are coming, troubles are coming, therefore do not Be caught prayerless in the day when they come. The time to pray is now. Because if trials and distress come upon you and you're not in a state of spiritual dependency and fellowship with God already, you will fail in that hour, you will fall, and you'll weep bitterly tears of regret just like Peter. But the reverse of that warning, if you heed Christ's words and if you get into a habit beforehand of dependent prayer... You will experience in that day of trouble the supernatural strength of victorious prayer as Jesus is about to exhibit in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus gives us an illustration of that in the following verses. After Jesus tells them that they need to pray in order to be victorious over temptation, Jesus shows them how to pray victorious. He shows us the four passions of victorious prayer. The first is seen in verse 41. 
which is what I would call honest weakness. Honest weakness. It says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Considering that the common posture for prayer back then was standing with their hands raised up to the sky, here we see the weight of Jesus' awareness of his need caused him to drop to his knees. And then Matthew and Mark record in their Gospels to fall face first onto the ground. So great was the burden of Christ in this hour. There in the dirt, our Savior sobbed and he wept and he cried out his burdened heart to God. So I want you to see the connection. You might be sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute. Jesus just said that one reason to pray is that you would not enter into temptation. So why is Jesus praying now? The answer is Jesus is praying because he recognizes that even he was susceptible to temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in all ways just as we are yet without sin. Jesus knew the reality of his human weaknesses, weaknesses that he had willingly subjected himself to. And Jesus knew that if he was going to be able to bear up under the weight of the coming trials and hardships, then he had better be in prayer also. Jesus was honest about the weakness of his human frame regarding temptation, and so he prayed. And the lesson is obvious. If Jesus himself acknowledged the weakness of his human frame when it comes to the issue of temptation, then we need to be honest enough to acknowledge our weakness in the face of inevitable temptation also and address that weakness through prayer just like Jesus did. So this is the first mark of victorious prayer over temptation. It is honest weakness. It's to wake up in the morning and acknowledge by faith temptations to sin are sure to come my way today. I am weak. God, I need your provision and your protection. And then to address that weakness through prayer just as Jesus does. It's ironic Honestly, the the first step to being spiritually strong for the day is to acknowledge that you're spiritually weak. The path to strength is the path of honest weakness. It is when we acknowledge that we are weak that God promises in 2 Corinthians 12.10 to make us strong. So what must you do to enter not into temptation? You must pray. You must pray with honest weakness. Second, you must pray, I think I would say it this way, with holy motivation. The beginning of verse 42 is Jesus laying prostrate there in the garden. He prays out saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That expression of a cup is a picture that's used throughout the pages of Scripture as God's wrath and judgment upon sinners. Psalm 75 verse 8 says that in the hand of the Lord there is a cup of foaming wine, well mixed, poured out for all the wicked of the earth to drain down to the dregs. See, it is the cup of God's wrath according to Isaiah 51. A cup of staggering and a bowl of wrath. It's a cup of wrath and according to Jeremiah 25, it contains the wine of God's wrath. And then Revelation 14.10 makes it even more intense by saying it is the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of God's anger. So do you get the picture? It is wrath upon wrath upon wrath to be poured out on the wicked. All the infinite wrath of an eternity in hell a billion times over was put into that cup. And here Jesus is saying, this cup is being handed to me. See, this is the essence of Jesus' temptation. This is at the root of his agony that evening. It's an awful realization that for us to be made the righteousness of God in Him, He had to be made what? Sin for us. 
that to be swallowed up in His perfect righteousness, He would have to be swallowed up in the guilt of our sin. And that was an awful pressure and temptation for Jesus. The very thought of coming into contact with our sin caused Jesus the greatest of agony. And here we see that the nature of Jesus' temptation was way different than ours. Whereas we struggle against sinful impulses that recoil against putting on holiness, Jesus struggled against holy impulses that recoil against putting on sin's guilt. That's the difference. That is the difference. When Satan comes to us in our temptation, what does he say? Cling to sin. In that hour when Satan came to Jesus in his temptation, he said, Oh, cling to your holiness. Abandon sinners in their depravity and sin. Have nothing to do with them. Cling, cling to your holiness. This prayer doesn't show Christ's weakness. It shows Christ's holiness. As Spurgeon wrote, you learn a lot about a man by what he groans over in prayer. Here we see Christ's victorious prayer was grounded in holy motivations. And again, the implication is obvious. If Christ... If Christ was only victorious over temptation because He prayed out of holy motivations, then we need to pray out of a desire for holiness as well if we're to experience victory over our temptations as well. See, I find it as a rule in my life that whenever I keep on falling into sin and into particular temptation over and over and over again, it's because deep down, even though I might be praying with my lips, I don't have a holy motivation in my heart, right? I might be praying like this. Well, I want to be free from my sin. God, please forgive me and keep me from evil. But deep down I'm thinking, but make it gradual, right? And, And keep it a secret. And whatever you do, make sure the consequences of this sin don't hurt, right? Question, will God answer a prayer like that? No, Psalm 66, 18 says this, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's not motivated by holiness. That's motivated by selfishness. Victorious praying over temptation is a prayer that says, God, deliver me and make me holy no matter the cost. That's victorious prayer over sin and temptation. Temptation is conquered when we pray out of a holy motivation. And so Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me, and I wish I could teach a whole message there. Because, think about it. If all that was needed to redeem sinners for heaven was just Jesus' good teaching, then the cup of God's wrath would have been removed. If all that was needed to redeem sinners for heaven was just Jesus' good example, then the cup would have been taken away. But it wasn't. The cup of God's wrath was poured out full strength into Christ's hands because there was no other way of salvation. No other way to satisfy God's wrath and purchase forgiveness for sinners like you and me than by paying the full price, by taking the full penalty, and bearing the full weight for our sins. The only way that sinners like you and I can ever die to sin and live to righteousness is if He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. That's 1 Peter 2.24. So says so that was the pressure. You need to understand that brought Jesus to His knees, to the ground, to wailing and to tears. Make no mistake, eternity hung in the balance there in that garden. Just like all those years ago at the beginning of time. Adam, under the same temptation, said to God, not your will, 
but mine be done. But glory of glories, that is not what Christ said. For his holy motivation was joined with, as we see third, a humble submission. He says, nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours be done. It's a familiar truth for many of us. 1 John 5, 14-15 says, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we have the request that we have asked of Him. In all of our prayers, in all of our trials, in all of our moments, this is to be the constant theme of our prayer and mindset. Your will be done. Your will be done. Not mine. And this is the only way we can experience victory over temptation is by acknowledging our weaknesses and out of a holy motivation, humbly submitting to our Father's will. And not just in temptations, but in all times. Jesus was the supreme example of this, by the way. You know, Jesus didn't all of a sudden wake up after a lifetime of living His own way, go into the Garden of Gethsemane and say, I'm going to live for God now in the face of death. There was a whole lifetime of submission to His Father's will. Hebrews 10.7 says that when Jesus first entered into this world, He said, Behold, I have come to do Your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of this book. And Jesus really did. He said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 8.29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. It was only because of this track record that Jesus had of submission that Jesus was able as a Holy Spirit-empowered man to submit to His Father's will when it mattered the most. And to be able to say to Peter in John 18.11, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? See, Christ's prayer that gave him victory over temptation was marked by honest weakness, holy motivation, and humble submission. And if we desire to triumph over temptation, this must mark our life in prayer as well. Right? So often we pray, God, free me from this temptation and give me victory over this sin. Just don't let me suffer any consequences. God, please do your will in this area of my life. Make me your servant. Just don't ever send me there or go make me do this, right? No, victorious prayer is prayer borne up by a life of honest weakness, holy motivation, humble submission. There's one left, and that is heartfelt urgency. It says in verse 43, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Isn't it interesting in the Old Testament? Men had to be strengthened to face God's holiness. Here in the garden, Jesus had to be strengthened to face man's sin. So deadly was the sight of it. And yet don't miss this fact that Jesus was, was strengthened to face it, wasn't he? No man ever faced the pressure of a temptation like this, and yet in his physical weakness, Jesus prayed. And in his prayer, he was strengthened for the task. His prayer was answered. His body was strengthened to do His Father's will and to take the cup of God's wrath for us. And He dearly needed the strengthening from God because look at what's described next in verse 44. And being in agony. Being in agony. That's an aorist in the Greek. In other words, under a continual increasing agony. He prayed again, again and again, more earnestly. In other words, as the pressure increasingly grew greater 
in that garden of the olive press, his prayers grew increasingly earnest that evening. Jesus prayed until he couldn't pray any harder. Hebrews 5, verse 7 says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. As the agony increased, Jesus exerted himself to the uttermost in prayer. To what degree? End of verse 44. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. In other words, Jesus' body began to break down under the pressure of his praying. In Hebrews 12, verses 3-4, through the author says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, like Christ did. See, Christ is striving so hard in prayer with such agony that he starts to shed blood. Even his perfect human body was unable to withstand the strain, anguish, and onslaught of what he was about to do. To be made a curse and to be made sin for me and you. Jesus pleaded for strength against inevitable temptation to such a degree that his own body suffered for it. And again, the implication is clear. If Christ's victorious prayer was marked by such heartfelt earnestness, then why are we so dispassionate in our own prayers? Our prayers should be marked by heartfelt earnestness also. If you desire victory over temptation... If you desire strength for today, then you must earnestly plead for it. And this is what Jesus has been teaching in the Gospel of Luke, right? We've seen it. What did he say back in Luke 11, verse 9? Keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. Luke 18, verse 1, you must always pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Demonstrate faith. Faith in a God who delivers the victory and with heartfelt earnestness keep on praying. That's what Christ does. It's exactly what James says. The effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. So these are the passions of victorious prayer. Honest weakness, holy motivation, humble submission, and heartfelt urgency. And I just have to finish quickly with verses 45-46. through 46. It says, And when he rose from prayer... He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. So with the cry, not my will but yours be done, Jesus rises up in victory over his temptation in that hour. He rises in strength and power for the trials ahead. Oh, wait till next week. It is glorious what you see from the person of Christ. The grace, the power, the strength, the peace he exudes in the midst of absolute chaos. Peace that can only come through prayer. His disciples scatter. Christ stands strong because he relied on God in prayer. He rises up what a picture he must have been when he got off the ground he was covered from head to toe with dirt blood sweat and tears he had just already fought the battle but he had fought the battle and won on his knees before any sword was ever drawn the temptation had passed and he had prevailed in prayer he had submitted to the father's will he stood ready for the hours that were awaiting him that night but when he comes back to the disciples Does he find them prepared? He finds them sleeping, it says, for sorrow. That is sad. 
Remember, Luke told us at the beginning of this passage that Jesus had gone about a stone's throw away. I don't know how long, how far you can throw a stone. (laughs) But that means they would have been able to see and they would have been able to hear Jesus praying in his agony. And yet, though he called them to pray, and though they saw him pray, and though they understood that Jesus was in some form of torment, there is no indication that they ever uttered a single breath of prayer to God. The fact that Jesus commanded it and demonstrated it meant nothing to them. In smug self-confidence, they were still convinced along with Peter that they were invincible and that prayer for themselves for that day was unnecessary. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like me. Is prayer the first thing that comes into your mind when you crawl out of bed? should be. Though the sinless Son of God felt a desperate need for strengthening from His Heavenly Father, His own sinful and weak disciples felt no desperation about their weakness and vulnerability. They felt no need to pray. Just as they often do today. Christ has instructed it. Christ has demonstrated it. And yet, where are His people? Sleeping. Though the silent of the night was split by the bitter cries of Jesus, Jesus still prayed alone. But he gives more grace because look at verse 46. He says, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? In other words, have you not been listening? (laughs) Why are you not obeying? Why are you not praying? In other words, how can you be sleeping at a time like this? Jesus is telling them, I've conquered in prayer, and I want you to join me in that victory. I want you to join me in that victory. He says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Even in the very last moments before he's delivered over, his message is rise and pray so that you will not be entered into temptation. There is still time. Rise and pray. Pray now. So this is a call to arm for all of us to rise and arm ourselves with prayer. Though we, like the disciples, yes, we often fail to heed Christ's command and are found sleeping spiritually in this area, the invitation to rise and pray is still extended. Why? Because prayer is for the weak. Prayer is for those who fail. Prayer is for those who stop praying and need to get back to praying. Right? And so Christ calls us to acknowledge our weakness and address it in prayer, to follow Christ on the path of victorious prayer. If you struggle with this, I would encourage you, Find some ways to keep yourself accountable. Start a prayer journal. Do something to make sure that every day when you open up God's Word, you are also spending time in prayer for yourself and for those you love and for our church. Follow Christ on the path of victorious prayer with honest weakness, holy motivation, humble submission, and heartfelt earnesty. Rise and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Christ has conquered in prayer and by His grace, We must follow him there.